Please open in your Bible, turn in your Bible to Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. Now over the last nine months, we have been giving a significant portion of our attention as a church to this book of Proverbs. These 31 chapters of Scripture are given to us as wisdom from God. God has given us these words to to shape our thoughts and our actions, to shape our, our affections and our imaginations. And this book, these 31 chapters, are for us today. This book is about walking in God's ways amid the everyday, the ordinary. It speaks to walking in wisdom in our relationships, walking in wisdom in work, walking in wisdom in school and in parenting, walking in wisdom in the midst of conflict, walking in wisdom in the face of temptation. God gives us this book of wisdom to lead us in the goodness of his way, to be a a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we go through the ordinariness of our lives. But how does this wisdom work? What is this key that we need to walking in this wisdom? Do we just memorize these 31 chapters of Proverbs and then we got it? Proverbs brings us again and again to this idea that there are always two paths. There are always two ways. There is wisdom and folly. There is righteousness and wickedness. There is life and death. And Proverbs keeps this this contrast before our eyes, that we might see and know and feel the goodness of walking in God's way and the tragedy and danger of walking in any other way. Now, as we've journeyed through the first 19 chapters of this book over the last nine months, there's this thread that runs through it, a theme that that emerges, it's the key to wisdom that that makes all the difference for which way we walk. It's this theme that distinguishes between the wise and the foolish. It's this mark that determines whether we walk in the way of life or death. What is this key? What is this theme? Well, Solomon introduces us to it at the very outset of Proverbs. And in Proverbs 1 verse 7, we read this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's the fear of the Lord that is the characteristic that makes all the difference. This is what keeps us from evil. This is what brings us to wisdom. This is that mark that leads to life. The fear of the Lord is this thread that runs from beginning to end in Proverbs. It's this fear that defines wisdom in this book. And so for us today, in the, in the midst of our study of the book of Proverbs, I want us to give our focused attention just to this theme, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And we're going to do that by starting with just one verse in chapter 19, Proverbs 19, verse 23. And through that, I hope we are going to better understand what the fear of the Lord is and why it is so good to live in this fear. And yes, I know what I just said. It is good to live in this fear. Now that sounds strange to our ears. Sounds strange to say. Sounds strange to my ears. It's good to live in this fear. Maybe you're thinking, well, he's saying fear, but he doesn't really mean like fear. But no, fear is exactly what I mean. And my hope and prayer is that you will come to understand the goodness of this fear 
better as we listen to the Lord together. So hear God's word this morning for us. Proverbs 19, verse 23. This is the word of God. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And if Fong Yu was up here reading right now, and he read it in Mandarin, it would communicate the same thing. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Let's pray together. Our glorious Father, would you, by your Spirit, captivate us by your astonishing grace this morning. May we marvel at and be satisfied by your steadfast love and mercy, that, you might, that we might have this fear that leads to life. Your word says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And this is our desire this morning. Turn our minds and our hearts away from the traps and landmines that would love nothing more than to destroy us. And help us by your Spirit to drink deeply from this all-satisfying fountain of life. Help us to see and to feel and to know the goodness of fearing you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. We live in a confused time. On the one hand, data and science and the experts will tell us that this is the best time to be alive. One journalist recently pointed out the following. He said, life expectancy has risen more in the last 50 years than the previous 1,000. The likelihood of a violent death has never been lower. On average, we're better educated than ever, and childhood mortality has plummeted. We're also richer than ever before. He points out this. He says, in 1981, nearly half of the people in the developing world lived below the poverty line. Nearly half of the people below the poverty line. As of 2012, that figure had dropped to 12%. We have more knowledge, more medicine, more wealth, more security than ever before. Yet at the same time, we're seeing this surge of anxiety and depression, especially in those under 50, leading one author to summarize that boomers are afraid of getting old, millennials are concerned that they're not special, and members of gener Generation Z are worried about everything. One, one scholar is, uh, has a book coming out in March called The Anxious Generation. And these are the days that we live in. While we have fewer reasons than ever to be afraid, our culture is flooded by fear. Scroll social media or browse the news, and it won't take long to see that people are afraid, that fear has its hold on us. Fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of loss, fear of missing out. Fear is all around us. Fear is with us. But what I'm going to argue today and what the Bible teaches is not that we have fear in the first place, but that we fear the wrong things. The Bible consistently commands us to not be afraid. It's actually one of the most often repeated commands in Scripture. Do not be afraid. But at the same time, Scripture also uses the language of fear over and over again to speak of the disposition that we should have toward God. We are to be a people who fear God. Now, this, this idea, this concept, this phrase, fear of God, is not new to you all. 
but I think it's one that we're generally uncomfortable with. We don't use a lot. Fear is not a word that, that comes up in our fellowship with one another. Oh, you, should, you, you really need to fear the Lord. Have you shared that with a brother or sister recently? Likely not. And my hope is that as we take this time to consider the fear of God, that this language and this idea would, one, be a compelling and beautiful idea to us. We would see the goodness in it. And two, that it would come out in our language and come out in the way that we relate to God and think about God and encourage one another as we follow God. We live in a day where fear is seen as this entirely negative thing. And so it sounds strange to think of wanting to be a people who fear God. The answer to our fears is more fear? Really? We think of fear as something to avoid, something is bad, something to conquer, not something to cultivate. But then we come to Scripture, and like it or not, we see fear all over the place. And more specifically, there's this consistent call on the people of God to fear God. And this is presented not just as a good thing, but the very best thing. It's the path to life. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This verse gives us a condition, the fear of the Lord, and then it gives us the results of this condition, life, satisfaction, safety, and security. One theologian calls it the, the threefold fruit of fearing God. There is life in the fear of God. There is satisfaction in the fear of God. There is safety, security, peace in the fear of God. Those, those ideas are going to be behind everything that I say as we consider the fear of God together. And we're just going to think about this one question as we consider the fear of God. How does the fear of God lead to life, satisfaction, and security? How does that happen? Now, sometimes when people begin talking about the fear of the Lord, they want to reassure their listeners that it's not really fear that the Bible's talking about, right? It's reverence or awe or respect. And while this is well-intentioned, it's not entirely true. Uh, the Hebrew word that's actually behind what we read in English as fear, it means dread. It's a sort of panic. And it's getting at this, this intense and overwhelming emotion that, that just takes over our bodies. Fear, biblically speaking, is this emotional response that runs to the very core of who we are the depths of our being. And in Scripture, whenever we see someone encounter God, what is their typical response? What do we see? We see fear. Consider the time when Jesus calms a storm. Uh, the disciples are out on a boat with Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and a terrible storm comes up. And the disciples, what are they? They're afraid. They're terrified. They think they're dying. We're perishing. And Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. So they wake him up and, and Jesus rises and with a word brings peace to the winds and the sea. And Mark 4, 41 says that when the disciples who were just terrified of this storm because they thought they were dying, when Jesus calms the storm, that their response was to be filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were scared of the storm, but they had a far greater fear of the one who just calmed that storm. The end of the storm did not bring an end to their fear. 
Consider Luke 7, when Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. When the dead man, he sits up and he begins to speak. And Luke 7, 16 says that fear seized them all. A dude that was dead just sat up and started speaking. And fear seized them all. What were they afraid of? Were they afraid that like this dead guy is now talking? No, that's not what Luke tells us. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Fear seized them all because of the power that Jesus had to raise this man from the dead. When people saw the power of Jesus, their response was characteristically one of fear. Though we think of fear as always bad, that's not what the Bible teaches. There's something about this fear that is appropriate and right and good. So good, in fact, that this is a fear that Jesus himself had. Did you know that Jesus had the fear of the Lord? What? I mean, it's kind of crazy. Isaiah 11 tells us of the branch that will shoot forth from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And this branch is speaking of Jesus. And this is what verses 2 and 3 say. He, Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit, it's going to describe the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But get this, this is what verse 3 starts with. Speaking of Jesus again, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus' delight is in the fear of the Lord. And it's a fear of the Lord that the Spirit has given him, that rests upon him. This is not he delights in you having the fear of the Lord, which is true. The Lord delights in those who fear his name. This is a delight that Jesus himself has in the fear that he himself has. What? Speaking of Jesus, God says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His joy, his satisfaction, his happiness is found where? It's found in fearing the Lord. So what is this fear of the Lord? Like how is this fear of the Lord the delight of Jesus. One theologian, he, he defines the fear of God, and I think helpfully, as sanity. He says, the short definition of the fear of God is sanity. And this is something, I don't use that word normally, but it's something that I remind us regularly of, and this time is structured around. We gather to be reminded of reality, of what's really real. And sanity is living according to what? Reality. It's insane to pretend that you're someone that you're not. You're crazy. That's insanity. He goes on to say that the fear of God is living with the grain of reality. If you go against the grain of a piece of wood, what happens? You get splinters. It doesn't, doesn't work. He goes on, he uses an example of gravity. Defy gravity and you will not break a physical law. You will break yourself against it. So the fear of God then is, is sanity, living with a grain of reality. There's this wonderful picture of this in Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel 4, we're introduced to the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man at that time. And one day he goes out on the roof of his, of his penthouse, 
And he's looking out over all that he has and all that he has done. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Then Daniel 4.31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven years of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Why does this judgment come upon Nebuchadnezzar? Because he was living an insane narrative that this kingdom was a result of a testament to his mighty power, to his greatness. And boy, does God humble him. You know, in an instant, the word, it says immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he ended up for seven years as a wild man, eating grass like an ox. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, If you're drawing pictures, maybe you can draw that. Hair as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. There's an American, lived in 20th century, Howard Hughes. You may have heard of him. And he was uh, known for many things. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world, uh, known for his role in Hollywood and filmmaking and in aviation. And by the end of his life, he was a recluse and crazy. And at the end of his life... They said his hair was silver and down, halfway down his back. And his fingernails, his toenails were grown so long he couldn't even walk. And he had all the money in the world, but was terrified. A man driven by fear and, and brought to nothing, even though he had everything. It's like Nebuchadnezzar. But then Daniel 4 says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And what happened? My reason returned to me. He went from being insane to sane. He went from living not according to reality to living according to reality. And this is what he said. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stand before him. Nebuchadnezzar went from someone who did not fear God to someone who feared God, and there he found life. Verse 37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, standing on the roof of his house, looking over all that he had accomplished, all that he had done, brought to nothing. And he came to live in light of reality, right? He came to live according to the reality that, that there is no one like God. No one and nothing compares to God. The fear of God is sanity because it takes God seriously. It takes him for who he is and who he reveals himself to be. And the sooner that we look to this God, the sooner will our sanity be restored. 
You see, even though we can think of fear as this negative, it's, it's not only something that repels, that pushes away. Fear is something that draws us in. That's why horror movies are a thing. That's why shows like Fear Factor can be successful. And we need to recognize that, that real fear is a fear that draws us even as it overwhelms us. There's a sense in which, and, and something we can learn from, thinking of fearing the Lord as being a storm chaser. All right? Fearing the Lord as being a storm chaser. Every spring, there are people that come from all over the world to the American Midwest. They spend their time and their money for the chance of seeing what one storm chaser describes as what is easily one of the most awe-inspiring things this planet has to offer. Storm chasers. There's a scene in the 1996 movie Twister, a movie that I have actually not seen but I have read about, where two storm chasers get caught under a bridge with a tornado bearing down on them. And as the tornado gets closer and closer, the main character begins to slowly turn around, saying to herself, I want to see it. I want to see it. It's a tornado, a massive tornado, bearing down on them. But she just wants to see it. For the storm chaser, the power of these storms is a power that draws in. A power that, that overwhelms and beckons you to come and behold. One storm chaser who was writing of the death of colleagues who had died chasing a tornado. She's grappling with whether or not she would continue to chase. She, she ended by saying this, Chasing remains for me a form of religious practice. An encounter with the sublime. The heavens ran terrifying and beautiful, evoking a sense of exposure and revelation tightly coupled. Almost in spite of myself. I know I'll chase again. Storm chasers are, are fascinated by the power and the beauty and the intensity of a storm. Storm chasing is this pursuit of the sublime. The sublime is, is what's majestic and, and supreme. Nothing can exceed or surpass it. Nothing is more excellent than the sublime. And this idea of fearing God, being like captivated by the beauty and power of a storm, is helpful, I think, because this is what happens as we encounter God. But there's a way that it falls short. It falls short of what the Bible teaches because what it presents, if we only think of fearing God as being a storm chaser, what it presents is a divided God. It presents, as, it presents a God that we fear because he's powerful and majestic, but it says nothing of the fact that God is a God we fear because he is good. And that's what the Bible teaches. We fear God, not just because he's powerful, majestic, holy, other, but because he is good, because he is wise, because he is simply God. The devil loves nothing more than diminishing and dividing our view of God. I like what the Puritan Thomas Manton says. He says, Satan labors to represent God by halves. Satan labors to represent God by halves. Satan would much rather us fear just half of God than God himself. He works to make us afraid of God so that we might run away from God. It's like we hear about the storm chasers. We might hear about them and be fascinated by their pursuit of the blind. It's, it's sublime. It's, it's wild that there are people that do this. It's crazy. There's this, even this thing called, I think it's called chaser convergence, and it's when there are traffic jams, when there are tornadoes there, because of all the people that are storm chasing. It's wild, crazy people. But I'm happy to hear about them and then sit back on my couch and think, like, no way. 
Like, not for me. That's cool for you, but not for me. And we can think of the fear of God like that. Better, better for someone else. N- not, not really for me. That's not my thing. I'd ra- much rather think of the love of God. You know, I want to be in the love of God, not the fear of God. But the Spirit comes to us and intends to produce in us a life-giving, joyful, overwhelming fear that's not just rooted in God's majesty or power, but in God Himself. A God who is love. A God who is good and gracious. A God whose mercies are new every morning. This is the God that we fear. I want you, if you can, turn in your Bible over to Jeremiah 32. And in my Bible, you turn about 150 pages and you're there, if that helps. Jeremiah 32. It's a little bit to your right. You're going to go through Isaiah and you will come to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we read, uh, Jeremiah 32, we read of the coming of, of the Spirit, the coming of God to give us new hearts. It's God's initiative and God's doing. This is what God is doing. What will he do? Jeremiah 32 tells us. If you're there, you can follow along. I want you to, I want you to see this. This is what the Bible says. Verse 37, chapter 32. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Did you hear that? Did you get that? God, of his own initiative, out of his own love, in his own strength, says that he's going to save his people. This is talking about salvation. He says he's going to save his people. He's going to give them safety and security. He's going to give them new hearts. He's going to dwell with them. He's going to make a new everlasting covenant with them that he will always do good to them. What an incredible thing. What a glorious truth. But how is God going to do this? Our text tells us he is going to put the fear of God in their hearts. He says, I will give them new hearts that they may fear me forever for their own good. It's this fear of God that is for the good of God's people. Jeremiah goes on in chapter 3, and he speaks of all that the Lord is going to give to his people, all that he will do for them, bringing them health and healing, abundance and security. Verse 8 of chapter 33 says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And after this long list, declaring God's goodness and grace, verse 9 says of his people, that they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. I think when we think of the fear of God, we think of the, the mountain trembling and the thunder and the lightning and the voice that makes the earth quake. We think of those things. 
When you think of fearing God, do you think of trembling of, because of all of the good and all the prosperity that he gives to his people, to those who are his? That's what the Bible teaches. The fear of God encompasses both. Why do the people fear and tremble in Jeremiah 33? Because of all the good that God will do. We see and we hear that this fear of God is not something that's only fear because of His power, His majesty, His holiness, His greatness, but our fear of God is our response to the very goodness and grace of God. It's a fear that leads to life, a fear that leads to satisfaction, a fear that leads to safety and security. It's a fear that, like the storm chasers, it longs to see God. But it's a fear that, unlike the storm chasers, is drawn to him because of the very essence of who he is in his incomparable majesty and his abounding goodness. People chase storms because of, of, of their majesty. It's awe-inspiring. The most awe-inspiring thing someone can see on earth, as, as one of the storm chasers said. But they don't chase storms because they're astonishingly good. But get this, we don't fear God so that we can get this goodness. And Jeremiah shows us that as well. Our fear of God is not to produce this goodness from God. It's not, I'm going to do this so that I can get this. We fear God because he is good. The fear of God is not some means to some other end. It's the end itself. This is the declaration of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. God's call to us is to fear him. To fear him not to obtain some blessing, not to obtain some favor, not so that we can get what we've always wanted, but because this is the only right and fitting response to God himself. You see, in the Bible, nothing worse can be said of a people than that they do not fear God. And this is what we see in, in Proverbs as we're making our way, and we're confronted with these two ways. You can fear God and walk in this way of life, or you can not fear God and walk in the path of death. In Romans 3, where Paul is presenting his readers with the reality of their sin, Jews and Gentiles all have sinned. The fact that no one is righteous, all are without hope outside of God. He, he stacks up these quotations from the Old Testament. And it concludes with this verse from Psalm 36, 1. What is the great tragedy for humankind? It's this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In the Bible, that is... is the most condemning thing, the worst thing that could be said about someone. They did not fear God. With our distorted understanding of fear and what it means to fear God, I don't think, we sound, think that sounds that bad, functionally. When there's no fear of God before our eyes, there, there are two things we do. We either reject God or we use God to face our fears. And I think it's that second temptation, that second response that we are more susceptible to, we can be more tempted by. To use God to face our fears is to see him as a God who exists for my happiness. So God exists to keep me and my loved ones 
healthy and safe. God exists to answer my prayers, to solve my problems. We don't so much reject God as use God. God becomes something that I can add to my life so that I can get what I really want. So I think we we tend to think fondly of Jesus. We like him. But what we can be more infatuated with, what we love more, is his blessing, his gifts, his benefits, not himself. There's no fear of God before our eyes. This is a distortion of the gospel because the gospel of God is the gift of God himself to us. That's what satisfies us. That's where we find life. That's where we receive safety and security. It's in Christ himself. We can be satisfied because we have him, not because he gives us some satisfaction outside of himself. True fear of God, love for God down to the very depths of our being, what it is 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 worship. It's worship in its fullest sense. So when we hear the fear of God, what we should be thinking of is it's, it's a life that's given to God in worship. It's to be captivated and overwhelmed and this joyful and life-giving response to the grace and glory of God because there is no one like him. George Swinnick, a pastor in the 17th century, he writes, between God and us, there's an infinite distance and therefore there ought to be, if it were possible, infinite reverence. He is so vastly above and beyond all others in excellency that he alone deserves the name of excellency. Therefore, his name is holy and revered, and he is to be greatly feared. The greatest excellency calls for the greatest reverence. Brothers and sisters, as we come to God in his his glory and his might, in his beauty and his power, in his love and his holiness... We come to a God that should simply stagger us. Our love for him should be this overwhelmed and trembling love, a fearful love, not a love that pushes us to run, but a love that draws us in. There's this scene in in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, a book that's part of the Chronicles of Narnia, where where the young girl Jill is, is crying and thirsty, and she's abandoned in a wood. She comes to a stream, but she sees a lion sitting there eyeing her. And the lion speaks to her, and I want to read a portion of this. She came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. And the lion said, are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, 
Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. This picture of Jill's overwhelmed fear before this lion is a wonderful picture of the fear that all of us must experience as we come to God. I can tell you about it. You can read about it. Scripture will command you to fear God. But until we experience God, until we see God, we will never truly fear him. You see, it's hard, it's hard to come to God. We're aware that, that we're not worthy. We're aware that he is so much greater, so much powerful, more powerful than we are. We're aware that we've failed so much. We're aware that God is the judge of all things, and so we hesitate. We're, we're timid. There's this part of us that only wants to stand far off or to turn away. Like the people of Israel, when we begin to comprehend and behold all that God is, when we see the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the mountain smoking, we are afraid. Sometimes we have faith like Moses, and, and we express this longing to see God. But we cannot see God and live. When Moses in Exodus 32 asks God to show him his glory, what does God say? He, he says, what is his glory that he's going to pass, pass before as he passes before Moses? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then the Lord, as he, as he passes by Moses, what he does is he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand. And on this side of the coming of Christ, what we come to find is that rock is Christ himself. He is the cleft of the rock in whom we are hidden, that we might behold the glory of God's grace in the gospel. You see, in the incarnation, in Christ clothing himself in flesh, he could have come in majesty, but he came to us in weakness. He came to us in humility. In mercy, he came to us for salvation, calling sinners tenderly to himself. This is the good news of the gospel. God is not just our problem as judge. He is our solution as Savior. And this is why we fear God. This is the fear of God. Jesus is the one in whom we take refuge. So how does the fear of God lead to life and satisfaction and security? Well, this fear of God is a life that lives according to reality. According to the reality of God's glory, according to the reality of God's grace. This is sanity. This is satisfaction. It is peace. It is hope. I want to end by reading from Psalm 130. The psalmist writes this. In, in, a, in a place of fear, a place of earthly fear, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your overwhelming glory, your overwhelming goodness. Lord, may we marvel at who you are. May we long to fear you. May we know the goodness of fearing you. May that affect our our thoughts and our minds and our actions. Lord, as we continue to study the book of Proverbs, may this fear of God inform the study of these texts. It's the fear of God that leads us in this path of life. It's those who fear you who are satisfied and kept safe. So, Lord, may we be a people who fear you. For the glory of your name, amen.